0: We're going to be in mark chapter eleven verses one to eleven this morning as we continue our series in the book of mark mark eleven one to eleven uh so you will recognize this if you've been in church at, for any length of time you'll recognize this is the Palm Sunday passage, but this is not Palm Sunday, everybody. It's not Palm Sunday, but it's what comes next. And so we're going to take a look at it in light of uh, the entire book of Mark. And I'd like to title the message today, Making Our Messiah. And I want to share a story with you just to sort of begin to illustrate that point. And then we're going to look at the context because I think the context is really important so that we can apply this. So uh, this week, Angela and I had a unique Moment, uh, our kids are 21, 19, and 14. So the 21-year-old is working out of town, the 19-year-old is working out of town, and the 14-year-old went on a mission trip, which left Angela and I at home for a week by ourselves. Like, holy smokes, what is this? I didn't know that it was it was going to be this good. And so, anyway, we we found out like we can do stuff. Whenever we want. Um, And so we went to get coffee like 7. We were living on the wild side. And um, went to this coffee shop like 7 p.m. And uh, had coffee. Interestingly enough, found out we're old because that kept us up all night long. Uh, So note self, don't do that anymore. But uh, while we were there, we're just talking and it started to rain, which has been raining, you know, all day, every day for a while. And it started to rain and this guy that was working there was going to walk home and he was trying to borrow an umbrella. And I wasn't really paying attention, but Angela's like that compassionate heart that's always looking and, you know, what does everybody need? And uh, she's like, oh, do you need a ride home? In which case I perked up like, oh, coffee date over We're taking this dude home. Where does he live? You know, Dallas or is it as close? You know, and he lives on Bay Area. He's gonna, he was going to walk in the rain like three miles. So, so we're like, okay, we're taking you home. We get in the car and um, we're having this great conversation and uh, the guy... He goes, so what do you do, Brian? We had introduced ourselves. I, didn't, I don't introduce myself as Pastor Brian to everybody that I uh, meet. So I told him my name is Brian. I lived in the area. And uh, So what do you do? Which is a question for me that, like, changes everything for people. Like, is comfortable. And then, I, so I said i'm a pastor at bader church over in uh league city and uh he, but he did, he he just laughed out loud like very i mean i was like well that's a first usually like <laughs> people quit cussing or they start talking about god more or you know whatever but <clears throat> not him he just like laughed out loud and he goes i would have never guessed that you were a pastor i was like Perfect. I try, you know, not to be the cookie cutter or pastor. But then I started wondering, like, what does he think that I am? Um, And so I asked him, like, what what did you think that I I was? I was thinking, you know, astronaut or Green Beret, something like this. He said, I thought you were an electrician. I was like, an electrician. Like, what about me gave you the signal, you know, that I'm an electrician? And he said, I I don't know, I guess it was your haircut. It's like, (laughs) okay, I have... You still want to ride home. it's raining, so uh but I said, no, that's cool. One of my best friends, uh noel Cordova's electrician is one of the coolest guys I know, so I will take electrician uh and we just had a had a great time. But what he did in his head was he he just looked at me and he assumed some things about me. He made this like narrative in his head about who was driving him home a particular day, and it was an electrician that that day, right. It's kind of funny, but when we do that same thing with Jesus, when we make him what we want him to be, or we presume some things about him in our mind that aren't actually true, we miss the mark. And that is what this passage of scripture is all about today. So I'm going to get you to stand with me. We're actually going to look at all of chapter 11, but we'll focus on 11, 1 to 11 for our reading and if you're our guest, we say this phrase, the very words, at the end of the main text reading to distinguish God's word from my own. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has needed it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? in the highest, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. You could be seated. So <clears throat> let me give you some background so that we can understand this and our application for today. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. There is a famous prophecy That everyone in this time period in, in Israel, especially around Jerusalem, the Jewish people would know, have memorized, and understand, and be looking for it to be fulfilled. It says this Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous. And having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the people were looking for a Messiah that Zechariah had said will come in from the east and will be riding on a colt they have several different prophecies to let them know this should happen around the time of Passover. So when we get to Luke chapter 11, it is the time of Passover, one of the most important Jewish feasts commanded by God in the Torah, because it is a time that the atonement of sin for all the people is going to be made by the 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 the, the, the slaughtering of lambs. So, here we come to Luke chapter 11, verse 1 to 11, what we find is people gathered on the Mount of Olives outside the city of Jerusalem, that's the east side, and it's Passover, which means that the population in Jerusalem has swelled. Maybe it was like 80,000 during that time period. It's probably swelled up to 250,000 for, uh, for Passover. Um, because Rome occupies... Jerusalem and all of Israel, for that matter. In that time frame, it was called Palestina, renamed uh, for this Roman province, this Roman occupation. And so, because Rome occupies Israel, There is a Pax Romana, a government edict by Rome that says, we keep the peace, we bring peace. And with it, they bring a lot of good things. But what they don't don't bring that the Jewish people want is their nation back. They don't want to be occupied. And so they're, they're in the first century here, in Luke chapter 11, they're, they're, they're gathered on the Mount of Olives, and here comes Jesus on this unridden colt, appearing to fulfill the Zechariah 9-9 prophecy. It's what they've been waiting for. Except when you, you realize every passage of Scripture has a history and a politic that surrounds it. The politic of that day is the people are looking for a Messiah that is militaristic, that will overthrow Rome, that will overthrow Caesar and give them their nation back. They're looking for a militaristic Messiah. So we get in that crowd, we get a people that are doing this very thing. They are ushering in the Messiah they want. And this is what we do. Sometimes we usher in the Messiah we want versus who he really is. So they're there, they're, but, but if you read the passage, there's some indicators that you might not see at first glance. But here's what's going on. From certainly in the crowd, there are people who legitimately are thinking Jesus is the Messiah, just like the prophecy laid out and just like the Bible says, and it's going to save us. But the general thought is not a personal salvation leading to a personal relationship with God, but he's going to save us meaning the we of the people of Israel from the Roman occupation. Also in the crowd are Pharisees. These are theologian religious types of the day who believe in the resurrection of the dead and Sadducees, Uh, Religious leaders who oversee the temple who do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And then you have another group, the zealots. The zealots were zealous for the law. So they were all about looking around, seeing who was Torah obedient and who was not, who was pagan and who was not. And they brought obedience with a knife. So these guys are terrorists. Which, by the way, Jesus has one disciple in his uh, band of 12 called Simon the Zealot. Which, you know, it's interesting who Jesus picks as his disciples. But it it's another story for another day. And so they, 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 the zealots are in the crowd. We know this for a couple of reasons. Uh, so one of the symbols of a zealot Is palm branches. They say in the first century that waving palm branches in the middle of a crowd is punishable by crucifixion because it is a zealous act and it's against Rome, obviously. And then uh, also their war cry is Hosanna, which is Hosanna. Right, so does this twist the passage a little bit for you? Understanding the historical backdrop, because usually you read this passage of Scripture, you think about the kids in Sunday school with a palm branch, you know, singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. And some people were, I think, some people were legitimately, save us now. But there were obviously people in the crowd, zealots, who were saying, save us from this Roman militaristic occupation. Take it and take it now. They were ushering in the Messiah That they wanted, not the Messiah that is the Messiah of the Bible. They were zealous for victory. And we are, when we usher in a Messiah that we want versus the Messiah of the Bible, we are ushering in a Messiah that will bring us what we perceive is victory in our eyes. Now, the second observation I would just make here is that the people in the crowd misunderstood the kingdom the Messiah represented if you read chapter 11, verse 10, after we get in verse 9, it says, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting Hoshanah. This is zealot. Okay? Not the little kids, but Hoshanah. This is a war cry. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is, verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna or Hosanna in the highest. So what they are asking for is the kingdom of David to come. What Jesus preaches in the gospels from beginning to end is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven but never the kingdom of David. So the people are asking for something that is Zionistic. It is nationalistic. It is focused on Israel. Give us our kingdom back. You be the one to take it back from Caesar. And Jesus is ushering in a completely different kingdom, the kingdom of God. They misunderstand the kingdom. Sometimes we do this As well, And then the third observation I would make here in verse 11, this is very anticlimactic. Imagine that kind of crowd. Imagine that kind of uh, the the shouting, the singing, the palm branches, everybody moving toward the eastern gate and up into the temple, following him on this colt. In verse 11, Mark says it, it went like this. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. So he just went up. Uh, down the Kidron Valley, up through the gate, and entered into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Isn't that anticlimactic? Like, where's the kingdom of Israel flag? that he's, he's, you know, the temple is the center of all of Jerusalem. It is supposed to be, you know, the the highest point and where everything happens. You know, what's the deal? Why does he just... Walk out to Bethany. Luke says it a different way. Luke says, he gives us this detail. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41, it says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Mark doesn't tell us that point. So again, triumphal entry, victory. Why is Jesus weeping? This should be the big moment, the big shebang, the big here he is and is not. It's very anticlimactic, leaves Jesus in tears he's in tears because they're ushering in a messiah they want not the messiah he is they're asking for a kingdom they want not the kingdom that he is bringing this is clear in the text here's the second thing we learn maybe second big point here the messianic agenda is not ours to set. How many of you know you cannot control Jesus? You have no power over Jesus. No authority over Jesus. In fact, if you were to read to the end of this chapter after we get done, the verse 27, they're, they're questioning his authority. Like, by what authority are you doing all this? Because they don't like it because they want to have authority over Jesus. They want to set the kingdom agenda. They want to set the messianic agenda. It is not ours to set So in verse 12 and 14, we begin to see what Jesus does next after he enters the city triumphantly, and it's anticlimactic, and he goes back out to Bethany. Verse 12, here's the first thing that Jesus does on his agenda after the victorious entry, triumphal entry. He curses a fig tree. I mean, nobody would have put that on the agenda for the Messiah After he rode in to overthrow Roman occupation, he curses the fig tree. Verse 12 and 14. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. It's not this fig tree's fault. There's not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Who feels sorry for the fig tree right now? He's doing what he's supposed to do. Not, not blooming yet, not bearing fruit yet. But Jesus comes to this and curses the fig tree. And Mark's interesting. He gives us this little phrase twice in this, this chapter. And his disciples heard it. That means they understood it. So the fig tree is symbolic for Israel. It it is a known symbol of Israel. Not just then, but now. Uh, Fig trees, if if you want to count on anything, you can't count on everything in the land of Israel, but you can count on fig trees bearing fruit in season. And there's a lot of them. And there's going to be a lot of figs every year. But here, Jesus curses this one. And it's a symbol. The disciples heard it's a symbol. He, he's actually symbolically cursing Israel. He's saying fruit, the fruit of my kingdom will not come from this fig tree. This is why the gospel goes out from Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the outermost parts of the earth. Paul said it this way. Their hearts were hardened for a time. He says in Romans chapter 9, 10, 11, their hearts were hardened for a time. So that the Gentiles, the Goyim, the me and you, could hear the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And he alludes to the fact they'll be grafted back in. It'll come back around. But Jesus is making a point here. They're ushering in the wrong Messiah. They want the kingdom of Israel. I'm bringing kingdom of God. And he curses the fig tree. Here's the second thing he does. Nobody would have put this on the agenda for the Messiah verses 11 uh chapter 11 verse 15 to 19 he cleanses the temple it says now the temple is the most important place in all of israel it's the center of everything in fact to this day if you look at security when you go to israel it's tight when you go to the airport it's tighter when you get to the west bank you get to the temple mount it's one finger on the trigger tight why it's the most important place in the world, geographically. Why? Because of everybody's faith colliding there. This is the most important place. The Romans have occupation of it. There, Herod's in his palace up there. Uh, and so the, there is Herod's temple there, and it is, the, it is the most important place. But Jesus goes there with a vengeance in cleaning the temple out Now, why? Why does he cleanse the temple? First, he curses a fig tree. The gospel is not going to spread through Israel, from Israel yet. Secondly, he cleanses the temple. Now, the temple precinct was overseen by the Sadducees. You have to understand the mindset of the Sadducee in the first century to get this. The Sadducees were in it for themselves. Okay, so they were Sadducees, they were religious leaders, but they were wealthy religious leaders. And they had a hunger for money. So if you look at this passage, it says, I'll just point out this one thing, uh, in verse uh, 15, it says that he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Pigeons. Okay, so at Passover, everybody's coming there with a sacrifice. If you can afford it, every 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 family is supposed to bring a lamb. If you can't afford it, do you know what you you have to bring? A pigeon. A pigeon. So when you think about the Sadducees for a minute, they oversee the, the temple and everything that's happened there. The temple has this royal stoa, which is the Wall Street of Israel. All the commerce, money, everything, it comes through there. Inside, the, the, the on the Temple Mount, in the actual building of the temple, you have the Gentile court, the people's court, uh, the, which is the Gentile's court. Uh, the, the court for women, the court for men, and the, the priestly court. The holy of holies inside, inside of that. In the Gentile court, this is where things are being bought and sold for the sacrifices of Passover. So what happens when you buy a Coke, a Diet Coke? Let's say you go buy a Diet Coke at the Astros game. How much does it cost? Come on, it's five times more than you would pay like if you just went to H-E-B. right? Same thing. The Sadducees, they raise the prices because by the time you get to the the Temple Mount, if you don't have your pigeon, you don't have your lamb. you got to have it, and you got to have it now. And so they raise the prices, and they take all that extra money, and they put it in their own pockets. We know this archaeologically because of the things that we found in the Gentile court, the money, and also the scales, the weighted scales, and also the location of Sadducees' homes. If you're a real estate agent, you know, location, location, location means money, money, money. All the Sadducees' homes are located up and, and against the temple, the most important place on the earth. They're not just houses. They're big houses. So these guys, these Sadducees, were all about the money. They were, they were in it for them, themselves. And the volume of trade that comes through at Passover is immense. And there are seven festivals in Israel. But passwords the the biggest one, and uh, so like if we have the Super Bowl here in Houston, what does it mean for us economically? Money. If any city vying for the Olympics, except during a pandemic, vying for the Olympics is also looking for money and prestige. The Passover comes every year; it's going to mean lots of money coming into the place. Josephus said uh, he's an extra-biblical historian. He said uh, in the year in the a, year uh, AD 66, when uh, that was the year the temple was completed. This is after this. This took place in Luke 11, a few years. There were 255,600 lambs sacrificed for Passover. 255,600 lambs. That's a lot of blood. But it's also a lot of money. And the Sadducees are raking it. And so Jesus, when he shows up to cleanse the temple, he says, uh, as he's cleansing it, verse 17, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? Meanwhile, you're taking money. The poor people are the ones that buy pigeons. You're stripping funds from poor poor people to line your own pockets. And this is my house, it's supposed to be a house of prayer, not just for Sadducees and religious types like you, for all nations, all peoples, every God-fearer. And he cleanses the temple. I can imagine that day. I mean, it it made made people mad because it says, uh, and he goes on, but you have made it a den of robbers. That's insulting. Take the religious people and tell them they're a bunch of thieves. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So these guys that are lying in their pockets are thinking to themselves, we're going to lose our economy because all these people are going to follow him because he's astonishing when he speaks, and so we're going to have to kill him. This is the heartbeat of the Sadducee, and this is why he cleanses the temple. So he curses Israel. They're looking for the wrong Messiah with the wrong kingdom. He takes the religious types that are overseeing the most important, and he says, we need to purify the kingdom of people like you. That wasn't on the agenda. They couldn't control his agenda. They couldn't set his agenda. And here's the deal. Neither can we as 21st century American followers of Jesus. He is the Messiah. The Bible says that he is. His kingdom is his kingdom and we don't control it. Now, here's the big question. Are we making the Messiah, Jesus, the anointed one, are we making the Messiah who we want him to be? and setting his agenda for him? Or are we following him as the Messiah that the Bible says that he is and walking in his kingdom agenda? Because there's two very different ways of looking at it. And if I'm generalizing for the American church in the 21st century, I'm going to say for many in the American church, I'm afraid generally the answer to the question is, yes, we are making the Messiah who we want him to be and setting his agenda for him, as opposed to following him for who he is and living in his footsteps, in his agenda. Now, how do I, how do I see that? How do I hear some indicators? Um, specifically for the American church in 21st century America, we struggle knowing the difference between the kingdom of America and the kingdom of God. No one likes to hear that. Is it wrong to be a patriot? No. Is it wrong to love your country? No. Is it wrong to confuse God's agenda with an American agenda versus a kingdom agenda? Yes. Is it wrong to make Jesus an American Messiah? Yes. He's not. He has his kingdom. He's not ushering in a kingdom that is conducive with America or the culture of America. I'm for America. I'm patriotic. Don't get me wrong. But primarily, we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. See? And so when we confuse, we sing like God bless America with this idea that everything American is the kingdom of God. We're just wrong. And we're ushering in our own kingdom. Second way we do this, this is for the parents in the room, and I am one and i I struggle with this: the prioritization of athletics or sport over faith development with our kids. We do it. the prioritization of sport over faith development. Um, let me ask you some questions, so let's, let's just get real in the room. How many of you played? Raise your hand, be loud, and be proud. I'm not asking you if you're sinning, so you can, you can you know, just, just be loud and proud. Um, how many of you played high school sports in high school? Just raise your hand. Come on. That's a lot of people. All right. How many played high school varsity sports? Raise your hand. Come on. All right. Loud and proud. Okay. How many of you started on a high school varsity team? Like you were... First team, yeah, good. Okay, how many of you played in college? Raise your hand. Okay. A lot less, but we still have some college athletes. So keep them up loud and proud. Just keep them up now. Like you played in college. Look, you worked hard. Keep your hand up there. Uh, how many of you started on a college team? Keep your hands up and just put it down when you don't apply anymore. You started on a college sports team. Okay. How many of you played pros? And the pros at, at that sport. Uh, I'm not seeing any. Anybody? None? No autographs to be had today. <laughs> we need to reach some pros, by the way. Like, <laughs> you make some friends. Uh, reach some pros. But here's the deal. That's true in almost every room. Everywhere that we do this particular exercise, the bottom line is like it's a small percentage of people that will play, play sports in college and then in a minuscule amount of people that will play in the pros. And yet we invest so much time, so much money in sport, and, I'm, and I have three kids, they all play soccer, they all play volleyball. I was there every game. I, I was their coach from time to time. I get it. I love it. They're, for me, when I'm watching, they're the, obviously the best players on the field. You know, I get that whole thing. I get it. I love it. It makes me happy. I love to play. I'm not anti-sport. I'm anti-making sport more important than discipling our kids, not investing the same and discipling our kids as we would and making them good soccer players or volleyball players. Because even if you are a pro, by the time you're 25, you're done, mostly, unless you're, you know, Tom or one of those guys, you know, who plays up into their 40s. But it's their unicorns prioritization of athletic development over faith. And then we pray like before the games, like our father in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come Lord. Thanks for helping us have this win today. (laughs) Fits our agenda. Third thing. third thing that we do ways that I see that maybe we are making the Messiah who we want him to be. Our personal discipleship is suspect. Our zeal to hear and obey Jesus above everything else is suspect. How do I know? I mean, I don't have to, you don't have to be, you know, a soothsayer to see this or a rocket scientist to figure it out. Um, it's just my commitment to hearing and obeying Jesus is, is is wholly aligned with my commitment to spending time in his word and praying personally. This is, Part of that, it's only like a small part, part of that, right? It's important, but what about Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday? Like, how are you hearing Jesus? How do you know to navigate? And, and we're not even going to him. I'm generalizing here, but we're not even going to him to follow him. He's like, come follow me. And we're like, I have to go to work. And you can follow him at work. In fact, that's the plan. You're the missionary, but we have to hear him and obey him. And our personal discipleship is suspect. Uh, We know that by how we're bearing fruit, by how we're living our lives, by what's going on, how we think. Fourth way that we, we may be making the Messiah who we want them to be is we invest our resources based on personal agenda versus kingdom agenda. So we take our time and our money, and basically we invest it in personal agenda versus kingdom agenda, right? So if we're thinking, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, then I might use my time and money differently than if I'm thinking, seek first the kingdom of Brian and all his, I don't know if we can use the word righteousness, you know, and and then all these things that I buy for myself will be added to me. And our investment, you know, the, you know what detectives do, right? They follow the money. Every time, if we're looking for a crime, <laughs> well, what was the money? What does their bank account say? Who got paid off? What is it less? Is it more? You know, how we spend our time and our resources shows who we are. See where we're where we're invested. Here's the fifth thing we do that makes me think we are ushering in a Messiah that we want versus who he really is, is that we easily compromise. We easily compromise our faith. We easily compromise our obedience. We easily sell out to just whatever the winds of the culture is. We hesitate even to correct our own Christian brothers and sisters in love. When you do get corrected as a Christian brother and sister in life, you get offended and cancel the other one. Why? Because we're we're looking for a Messiah that is about me, that lets me do whatever I want and then just forgives me at the end and gives me heaven. And where has this gotten us? We're more secular, more anxious more dissatisfied and more disillusioned just look at social media so what's our response let's say you were in the crowd that day in luke chapter 11 you had a palm branch the question is why are you waving it you want a militaristic messiah or a A Brian, a me-centered Messiah that will do everything that I need him to do and let me do whatever I want. You know, they were looking for someone to overthrow Rome. Or are you thinking to yourself as you wave this branch, Hosanna, save me now. I cannot rescue myself. I needed you to go to the cross, die on a cross to save me from my sin because I am a sinner. Left on my own, to my own agenda, I will wreck every time. Are you worshiping him, waving that palm branch? Because you know, like he died on a cross, saved me from my sins. He rose again from the dead. He sealed at the right hand of the father. He made me new. I'm not righteous on my own, but he gave me new clothes when he, was, when he died on that cross. He said, put on this righteous robe. I'll make you righteous. Use my righteousness. Because you're not on your own, you know? Sometimes we try to make the Messiah who we want him to be. And instead, we need to just hear his call. Come follow me and learn who he is and walk in his way. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. Just ask him to speak to you about this. Jesus, forgive us when we've tried to create you in our own image. That gets it backwards. You created us in your image. Forgive us when we have tried to make you be the Jesus we want you to be. We repent of it. We want you for who you are. We want to be kingdom ambassadors of your kingdom, no other kingdom. We want to live on your agenda, not ours. So God, by your spirit, through the truth of this word, align our lives with you. Jesus, call us again to follow you. Give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you. Father, for people who hear this message that are um, far from you or don't know you at all, I pray that they would have learned today that there's really good news that a Messiah came. His name is Jesus. He died on a cross to save us from our sins, which have real penalty, not just in this life, but in eternity. Lead them to belief that you rose again from the dead. In that way, saving everyone who would call on your name. Bring them to salvation today. And for the church in America, God, wake us up. You are the God of revival. We just crafted you in our own image. And Lord, we lay that down. This church, all all we can do as as a church collectively is lay it down and repent of it and say, uh, let us follow you. Give us a heart to be in your word and to pray, to hear your voice and to obey you. We love you so much, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen.